Well, Brother Guy, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule and spending time with us uh, this morning here. And of course, it's the evening where you are. You're actually joining us from, it's not Vatican City, but it's the observatory um, portion of the Vatican. That's right. We're in the Pope's Summer Gardens just outside of Castel Gandolfo, south of Rome. How, how, I was looking this up the other day on Google Maps. I was actually surprised how far the Summer Palace actually is from Vatican City itself. It's, it's several hours at that point. No, it's not so bad. It's about an hour by train, or it's an hour by bus, or it's an hour by car because the traffic is always terrible. <laughs> Um, it's about eight hours if you try to walk it, mostly because there's a big uphill part at the end. Noted. Do not walk to the observatory from Vatican City. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's, um, I can't imagine how busy you guys are with, with everything over there. And you're actually, you're the guy. You're the head of the entire observatory at this point. It's, uh, we, we call the observatory small but good is what we try to be. And we're halfway there. There we go. So we've got uh, basically a half a dozen astronomers here in Rome and another half a dozen astronomers in Tucson, Arizona, where we've got a large telescope. Um, That actually brings up a good uh, question. So, of course, the Vatican Observatory originated where you're located. That's where all the the older telescopes are. Um, Can you tell us? Well, first, I should actually backtrack because I asked the same question of all of our guests. How did you actually get started in astronomy what started your interest personally well there are two things happening one was that i was a baby boom kid and after sputnik all little boys and it was unfortunately just boys in those days were going to be scientists to help beat the russians Uh, but beyond that my father had been a navigator in b-17s during world war ii and learned celestial navigation so he learned the stars that way but he'd also been a fan of astronomy as a kid growing up in Boston. So I learned the navigation stars, the bright stars from him. And then at about age 10, I got the famous H.A. Ray book, The Stars, A New Way to See Them, which I recommend to everybody. I still have the copy I got when I was 10 years old, plus a newer edition. At that point, my life took a kind of funny turn when I went into high school because I went to the Jesuit high school and the Jesuits said, well, all the smart kids are going to do Latin and Greek, not science. I wanted to be a smart kid, so I did Latin and Greek. And by the time I got to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. My best friend was going to MIT. And when I would visit him, I saw that they had weekend movies and they had pinball machines and they had the world's largest collection of science fiction. So in order to read science fiction at the science fiction library, I transferred into MIT. I chose the major of earth and planetary sciences and never looked back. Um, You know, now I get to find out what are the planets like where people can have adventures. It wasn't until I was nearly 40 years old that I decided I was going to actually enter the Jesuit order. I already had my PhD in astronomy at that point from the, the planetary sciences department at Arizona. And so they said, well, we've got an observatory, you've got a degree, an obvious fit. So in 1993, I joined the observatory. And about six years ago, they made me the director. That's really cool. I appreciate you telling us your history. Uh, what I think is neat, because I am I like meteorites, and you were actually the curator. Are you still the curator of meteorites? No, no, no. I passed that on to a younger fellow who okay. gets to do all the work. 
I started a lot of research and, and came up with a lot of techniques for measuring meteorite physical properties. And what Bob Mackey has done as basically he's gone back and done it better. But uh, what the heck? He's now put together, he's handled more meteorites probably than any other person on earth because he's gone to every collection around the world that'll let him in to measure the density, the porosity, some of the uh, magnetic properties, some of the uh, thermal properties. And over a period of a you know, good 20 years, his work and my work has put together this large database of meteorite physical properties that nobody had before because it took 20 years. And it's impossible to get funding to do something for 20 years if you're lucky to get three years funding. That's one of the great things of working at the Vatican Observatory. We don't have to worry about three-year funding cycles. We have the time and the money to do these long-term projects. I can't even imagine, just being a meteorite aficionado, I don't know if any of our viewers are into meteorites, but they're really, they really go hand in hand with the strong, obviously, but you know, they don't cross over as much as you would think, so. It, well, well, they, they they cross over quite a bit. You know, I tell my astronomy friends, you think you're studying stars and planets and, and nebulae. All mm -hmm. you're really studying are photons. But when I have the meteorite in my hand, I've got the actual atoms that have come from stars and red giants and nebulae and supernovae and, you know, the, the collapse of black holes that uh, produce our processed materials. I can actually measure and compare the numbers of different isotopes in the inclusions in the meteorites against the theories that theorists have come up with for nucleosynthesis for how the elements are made. So it's not just that I can you know, imitate Carl Sagan and say, we are made of star stuff. I can show you the star stuff. I can hold it in that's my why hand. I like bringing meteorites out to my outreach events because it really brought it full circle and people really got the feel of that um it's not just oh there's some you know fuzzy thing out in space it's now it's a thing i can touch it and it really brings it so much closer so um yeah. i don't know um, you might know this but how many uh samples does the vatican actually have in their collection Uh, it's always growing, though, somewhat slowly. I think the number is around 1,100. It's a substantial collection. I think it's around number 20 in the world. That, those samples, of course, I would assume are held in where you are, in Rome. That's right. They're held in Rome. Uh, most of them actually came from a gentleman collector of the 19th century, the Marquis de Mois, who... Uh, when he died, his widow decided to donate the bulk of his collection to the Vatican. But even before his death, he had donated maybe uh, a few hundred pieces. It's a collector's collection, which means it's a little bit of every kind of meteorite. And so it's ideal for the kind of survey work that um, we do. So moving from the, the meteorite, because we could do a whole episode on meteorites, I'm sure. Um, exactly. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, don't get me started. a little bit about the history of the observatory in general, like how the one in Rome started? And then, of course, people may, like you mentioned before, they may not know, but you have a larger facility um, just outside of Tucson, mm -hmm. just outside of Tucson, Arizona. But um, could you explain the facilities? Yeah. Well, we claim to date back to the reform of the calendar in 1582. 
And in a loose sense, that's correct. Uh, that reform was done with the aid of a Jesuit named Christopher Clavius. And anybody who knows the moon, or at least knows the movie 2001, knows that there is a crater Clavius on the moon. The reason there is a crater named for a Jesuit scientist is that guy who made the map was a Jesuit, Vitrolli, uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste Vitrolli. And so he made the first modern map in the 17th century. He was maybe 20 years after Galileo and outdid Galileo with better telescopes because of course he was you know, the next generation. And there were Jesuits at the Jesuit college in Rome doing astronomy up through into the 18th century until the, the Jesuits were suppressed for about 45 years. Politics, all sorts of things going on. When they came back, Jesuits then started observatories around the world, every place where there was a Jesuit college. And there were, I think, more than 80 different observatories at one place or another at one time or another. And a lot of really important astronomy happened. Perhaps the most important Jesuit astronomer was a fellow named Angelo Secchi. And he had a telescope on the roof of the St. Ignatius Church in the center of Rome in the 19th century. And he had the idea to put a prism in the light path of the telescope, look at the spectra of each star and start to classify stars by their spectra to see that different stars had distinctly different kinds of spectra. It was the beginning of what became the HR diagram, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. It was the first time that astronomy moved from asking where are the stars in the sky, mapping out the locations, to what are the stars, which became astrophysics. He's the father of astrophysics. Politics, again, entered into it in the 1870s when uh, Rome was captured by the rest of Italy, by the you know, Garibaldi's forces, and Father Secchi's telescopes were captured by the very anti-clerical Italian government of those days. So 20 years later, Pope Leo XIII decided to start his own Vatican observatory in the little bit around St. Peter's that was left to be the Holy See. Um, he hired a couple of astronomers to set this up and finally around the turn of the century, hired a Jesuit, uh, Father Hagen, to come from the observatory that the Jesuits had at Georgetown. They had this observatory until the 1930s. At that point, the Italian government and the Holy See did a deal to hand back some of the property that they confiscated, including the area out here in Castel Gandolfo that had been the Pope's summer home. By the 1930s, the area around St. Peter's was too light polluted to do much astronomy anyway. So in the 1930s, they built new telescopes here and set up a laboratory where they could measure the spectra of pure metals to compare against the spectra of stars. And they even founded a journal that's still going on to this day, uh, um, Spectrochimica Acta. So they had then modern telescopes made by the Zeiss company from the 1930s and even a, a relatively modern Schmidt installed in the 1950s. And that continued until light pollution made astronomy even here impossible to do. In the 1980s, the director of the observatory was George Coyne. He had connections with the University of Arizona. He had been a, on the faculty there before he was called to run out of the observatory here. So he did a deal with the University of Arizona that we would you know, get a house in Tucson and rent offices at the University of Arizona that came with the ability to use Arizona's telescopes. Basically, 
the University of Arizona got a bunch of, tele of astronomers they didn't have to pay for, and we got access to telescopes. Seemed like a, you know, a neat deal all around. But then, in the mid-80s, a fellow named Roger Angel came up with a new way of making telescope mirrors. Now, most of your audience probably knows that a telescope mirror is a big light bucket. You make it as big as possible to collect as much photons raining down as possible. And you want it to be parabolically shaped so that the, the photons all get focused to a point. The deeper the parabolic shape, the faster it focuses, the bigger the light bucket, the, uh, the more light it can get. But traditional ways of just getting a really big piece of glass and grinding it had kind of reached their limit with the 200 inch telescope. You can't make glass much bigger than that without it being phenomenally heavy. You can't carve it very much, which means that the focal point is way far away, which means the telescope is really big, which means the dome is really big and all of that's gotta be pulled up to the top of a mountain. Roger Angel had a crazy but wonderful idea. What if you melt the glass in an oven and you spin the oven? The molten glass can fit over a hexaform uh, form so that it's not a solid piece of glass, but very thin yet very rigid. The faster you spin it, the, the, the steeper the, the dish. They made one dish 72 inches just to see if it would work. And it worked like a dream. He went to George Coyne and said, we'll make a deal. We'll give you this mirror if the Vatican will build a telescope around it. So we built the telescope uh, on a mountaintop about four hours outside of Tucson. We kept our house right in Tucson itself, walking distance to the university. And this telescope is phenomenal. It is very fast. It's an F1 mirror which means it's short, which means the building is small, which means it's very quick to cool it down to ambient temperature, to make the air the same temperature as the outdoors so there's no uh, uh, disturbing of the light path. It is phenomenally sharp. Without adaptive optics, we get 0.8 arc second seeing regularly. And there you go. the telescope that belongs to the Pope right has a mirror that was made uh, by an angel. What Roger I Angel? I know it's like a Cassegrain design. Um, is it is it a Richie Christian optical design, or is it? No, no, it's far better than that, because it's so fast. You can actually use a kind of design that no one had dared make before, which is a Gregorian. Now, the idea of most telescopes is you, you have a parabola and you focus to a point. Great. What they don't tell you in freshman physics is that it's only in focus along the main axis. And anybody who's used a, a Dobsonian with low power knows that all the stars and the edges are no longer sharp. They're little fuzzy swirls. Comas, yeah, it's terrible. So a professional telescope will have a secondary mirror to correct for coma. Now, if you've got a really slow telescope and the, and the light path is really big, you want to put the mirror halfway up the light path. But that means the mirror has to be convex. And you can't really test a convex mirror the way you can a concave mirror. So the mirror is pretty good, but it's not perfect. But 100 years 
before any of this was thought of in the, in the 19th century, a guy named Gregory realized that if you had the light come to a focus and go beyond, then the secondary mirror could be concave, which you can test. And then it focuses down, so it's got an effect of F9 by the time it goes through the hole in the center of the telescope. No one had ever made a Gregorian telescope this big before. One of the problems is they're a real difficult thing to focus. The secondary mirror can't be more than 10 microns away from optimal focus or else it just all goes to hell. We took a chance. We took a Gregorian chance. But it's worked. It's just been a glorious telescope. And of course, this is the technique now that was used for the 8.4 meter the, uh, mirrors on the uh, large binocular telescope the large binocular and the mirrors that are going into the giant Magellan telescope down in South America. Neighbor, um, up on the mountain. We probably yeah. And that is. Uh... That's right. It's just up the road. One of the great things is. Yeah, one of the great things is that there is a marvelous uh, spectrometer called Pepsi, and I forget, mm. Potsdam, something, Shell, something, something, something. It's a fabulous spectrometer, and they can't use it all the time in the LBT because other people want to use it. So there's a fiber optic cable that goes from the basement of the LBT to our telescope. They are actually linked. Our telescope is used as the light bucket to collect the photons. It then goes down um, the optical cable to the spectrometer ask, in the basement uh, of the L L LBT. So we're doing some Graham, really lovely work using their instrument. In uh, Arizona, is is the Vatican Observatory open for tours and stuff up there, or is it kind of a by guest kind of a thing? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. There actually are tours, not all the year. You can't go there in the wintertime just because the roads are impassable without four-wheel drive, and, and, and even then it's dangerous. But when the snow goes, there is a, a museum down the hill in the town of Safford called Discovery Park. And on Saturdays, if you sign up ahead of time over the internet, you just look for you know, Discovery Park Safford, you can sign up for tours. They will take you up the mountain and show you the LBT and show you the Vatican Observatories, the, the VAT, the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope, and also the submicrowave telescope, which is a 10 meter uh, submicrowave so telescope that's part so, of so that's the, the Event Horizon Telescope that imaged the uh, black hole shadow. Point. It's just shy of two meter, 72 inch would be just shy of yeah 1.8 so that's the largest in the the arsenal um and then you've got the the telescopes uh in rome are, are those used for yeah 1.8 meters so yeah. much for research anymore but do you use them for uh use um uh, tell <laughs> yeah we've well we have four telescopes here and ironically, it's mm -hmm. the newest, the Schmidt telescope, which is no longer in operation. Uh, part of that is because sure. Schmidt telescopes require photographic plates that they don't make anymore. But also it had been out of use long enough that it would take a lot of effort to restore the, the mechanism just to point it. However, next to the Schmidt telescope is the original 1891 Carte du Ciel telescope. This was a telescope that they built 18 of them sent them around the world 
And every national observatory that had one of these, the Vatican was one national observatory, Italy was a different national observatory, so it showed the Vatican was independent of Italy, but they all had a part of the sky to photograph. And this produced the first accurate photographic map of the sky. So that telescope has been recently restored and it's in our visitor center. And once COVID goes away, we'll be open to allow groups to come in at night and actually put their eyes to the, uh, to the eyepiece of an 1891 telescope. It's just glorious. It's a beautiful piece of, of you know, 19th century uh, steampunk technology. In addition, on the Papal Palace itself are two more telescopes. One of them is one of the larger refractors in the world. It's a 16-inch, uh, um, uh, basically 20-centimeter, 40-centimeter uh, um, lens, uh, F11 Zeiss, pre-war Zeiss optics. And in addition, there is what's called a double astrograph. It was two telescopes in the same mount, a 24-inch Cassegrain and a 16-inch um, basically camera that again used photographic plates like they don't make anymore. It was basically designed just before the Schmidt was invented. So it was obsolete almost soon after it was put up there, but it's still a lovely cool. telescope. Well, On occasion, you... you can use it if there's an event like an occultation only visible from this part of the sky. But for the most part, they're used for student groups, for tourism. The other thing that we do have, I've got I've got you've got me going here. We've still got the photographic plates. We've got plates going back to 1891. They are being cleaned and scanned and digitized and eventually made available for researchers who want to compare um, sure. a star region that maybe we observed in 1935 with something we're observing today. Your listeners are probably familiar with Tabby Star. You, you know about that? This is a star that showed some very strange fluctuations in brightness. Uh, Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope saw it. And you know, there are all sorts of wild theories about it's a Dyson sphere, it's aliens building things, whatever. We can go to Tabby star and find it in our plates mm -hmm. at various times through history and show how the brightness cool of the star has changed, not only over the period of a year or so when it was observed by, by Kepler, it, so, but over a period of more than 100 all these new years to see the long-term change like, in its brightness. Oh, well, reference. So that's awesome. Um, I love the glass plate stuff from any yeah. observatory. It's just, it's amazing right, what exactly. was done with that technology verse even today. So, but uh, that's amazing what you guys are doing. What um projects are mm -hmm. currently underway with the vatican is it still a lot of spectral work um or are you do exoplanets yeah. or there is there we, we're all of the above um each of the guys who has come here as a jesuit priest or brother has a PhD from some major university, and they continue to do whatever research they started in their doctoral program or wherever that research has led them in new directions. So let me give you three examples of the dozen that we've got. There is a fellow uh, from actually from, uh, from the Congo, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, 
who got his degree in uh, first in Belgium, then Paris, and then Canada, who is one of the world's leading experts on meteors. He's got meteor cameras set up outside of Tucson. He's got collaborators in Canada where he first did his degree. And we've got the cameras sitting in a box waiting for COVID to end so we could set them up here in Rome. He can not only measure if a meteor is coming in and if it's bright enough to maybe drop a meteorite, the meteor is a flash of light in the, in the sky. The meteorite is the thing that lands on the ground. But he can also look at fainter meteors and work out from their brightness and how fast they're moving and with more than one camera, how high they are and how quickly they fade out. He can work out their density and he can work out in some ways their composition. And from the path, you can see whether they're coming on a comet-like orbit or an asteroid-like orbit. And suddenly, he's been able to classify different types of meteors and connect them to different sources within the solar system. That's one research project. A completely different research project. There is a fellow here who has done a lot of theoretical work on galaxies that orbit galaxies. Most people are familiar with um, the Magellanic Clouds that orbit the Milky Way, or maybe uh, M32, M30, um, and, and NGC, oh, lacking in the number of it, that orbits uh, the Andromeda Galaxy, M31. He has done measures of, especially the galaxies around M31, around the Andromeda Galaxy, to map backwards where they came from, how they were captured, and in a paper that he had published in Nature a couple of years ago, worked out that, in fact, there may have been another galaxy in the local group, along with Andromeda and the Milky Way, of a comparable size that collided with the Andromeda galaxy, oh, you know, six to eight billion years ago. So he's working out the evolution of galaxies and how galaxies collide, and indeed how a lot of the, the clusters that you and I learned about as kids as being globular clusters might actually be the leftover cores of galaxies that were eaten up by the Milky Way. It's really a whole new way of looking at how galaxies evolve. Again, a completely different way of doing astronomy. We talked about the meteorite work, so I'll just mention one last bit. We've got a couple of guys here who are now working on cosmology in terms of trying to understand what was going on in physics during the Planck period, 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the Big Bang, something like that, off, maybe off by a few orders of magnitude. But at the time when quantum theory and general relativity and you, you have to play nice with each other. Questions I think and nobody quite knows how to do that yet. And I'm sure so he's working on that. Time, but, As you can um, see, the, the range of astronomy you know, we do just covers almost everything in modern astronomy nowadays. The universe is X amount of years old. And then, of course, you at the observatory state, you know, oh, it's been this billions of years and such. How do you navigate that to where, well, the books that we learned say this and what you guys say is this? It. Mm -hmm. In a way, people could say it contradicts, but in a way, it also right. maps together quite well. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll give you first the, the, the overall soundbite answer. My faith tells me God made the universe. My science tells me how he did it. 
And you will find, you know, in scripture, dozens of different places that reference cosmology, that reference the origin of the universe, and they don't agree with each other scientifically because scripture was written over a period of hundreds of years and the ideas that were current when people were writing it changed over that time so if they were using you know the best science of their day during babylonian times they're going to give you babylonian cosmology it's not the cosmology that's important in scripture it's the thing that's different from the cosmology the Babylonians told uh, the, 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 the Israelites in the, the, were captured in Babylon, you know, 400 BC, that the world was flat, that there was a dome. So that's what they're describing in uh, you know, Genesis chapter one. What the Babylonians didn't tell you is that the universe was deliberately made by a God who wanted it to exist. It wasn't just by accident, that there is a logic behind it that follows as regular as night follows day, which is not what the Babylonians said. They said it was some warring gods that made the universe. No, no. Scripture says yeah. there's a logic behind it. Scripture says that it's good. Scripture says that it's worth studying. Scripture says that it's all done in the light, and so we can study it. You've got to believe all of these things before you can even try to do science. But the best part of Scripture is that, you know, the, the, the Genesis story, What's the goal of creation? To the Babylonians, it was a city of Babylon. What could be better than that? But in the seven days of creation, the ultimate goal is the seventh day, the Sabbath, the moment where you stop worrying about what am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? You took care of that in the six days. Mm -hmm. And you can instead, you can you know, kick back, contemplate the universe, and see in it the logic and the beauty and the elegance of its creator by studying it. The seventh day is where we get to be astronomers. And that is the goal of our creation. That's why we exist, not just to fill our stomachs, but to fill and feed our imagination, to feed our souls by looking at the stars, by writing scientific papers about them or writing poetry about them. By, by doing photographs of stellar clusters or painting, you know, Van Gogh's Starry Night. All of this is what makes us human beings. All of this is why we exist, because we don't live by bread alone. I, I think I read that someplace. And, you know, as for people who are trying to use scripture to map out that the world was made in October 4004 BC, it's a lot of fun, but it doesn't yeah. work. It brings up and uh, you know really most people before Bishop Berkeley didn't think that, think, and uh, most people after Bishop people Berkeley didn't think that. In the and, wrong way, where they're trying to you know, if nothing else, what can I say? It's a Protestant idea. It's not a Catholic more complicated, idea. but the answer to everything is probably it's kind of like Occam's razor, where it's like the simplest explanation tends to be the right one. Where it's like you, you can go into the thought process of what scripture would tell you and all this. And it's like, you start overthinking the process and overcomplicating it where it's like, like you just said, it's, it's very simple in what the goal is. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> oh my, yes. We do that. Yeah. But, but we overthink our science, too. 
And, and one of the mistakes that we make when we teach science to kids, I don't know how to do it any better, but you give kids a big physics book and the goal is to be able to solve the problem so you get the answer that's in the back of the book. But that's not physics. And the goal of physics isn't to find answers. It's to come to a deeper understanding mm -hmm. of this universe that we love. You know, you, if you're dating somebody, your goal is not to solve them like a problem. But your goal is to get mm -hmm. to know them better, to uncover new mysteries, to get to learn more about them and fall deeper and deeper in love with them all the time. Now, I'm, I'm talking here as somebody with, you know, with a collar. I don't have a spouse. But I saw my parents who had a marriage that lasted until, you know, my dad was 100. And 72 years, they were still learning more about each other. And that's the kind of love yeah, affair that we have as like scientists with point. the universe. Like you're worried too much about not that we're trying to solve it and put it into boxes, getting, you know, but we put maybe you, don't you classify all, things in boxes so as right, to see that, new mysteries that we would not have noticed before. Right too, so. Uh, <laughs> next yeah so, yeah but it leaves the challenge mentally of what the next one's going to be so you know one door closes another one opens yeah. at that point yeah i, I love crossword um, puzzles right so what do i do when busy, i solve a crossword so puzzle i, I throw it away questions from some people who've written in as well um and i like that you take the time to be detailed about it so i want to give us yeah. enough time to answer there's only three of them here but um um the first one is, I know there was some question about light pollution a while ago, um, probably from our previous episodes, um, but I don't know if it was ever solved. So does the observatory have functioning equipment uh, with a viable location now? Okay. I mean, maybe I'm, yeah, I'm not sure where that question's going with, but... Um, <clears throat> Okay, well, let me talk a little bit about light pollution. Um, there is an International Dark Sky Association, uh, which is headquartered in Tucson. And uh, yeah. the Vatican Observatory was one of the uh, early members to join it. We're tremendous supporters of their work. We built the telescope in Safford because it's a dark site area that's so dry that we hope that there probably won't be cities built there. Of course, now they're throwing these satellites up that don't even get me started. But... Uh, if you want to know an official Catholic view on light pollution, there is a ceremony on the night of Easter Sunday, Easter Saturday night, where people will light candles and go from, you know, a dark outdoors into a church with more and more candles. And it's just this whole liturgy of dark and light. At St. Peter's around uh, 2012, I think it was, Pope Benedict wow, gave a homily reflecting right on the there. nature of light. And he said, um, light pollution is a beautiful really example of human sinfulness, where we try to blot out God's like light with our own light. You're just, it has to be constantly more, 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 more. So, and unfortunately, because of that, you lose, you know, something beautiful and I wouldn't even say basic, but so fundamental to the core of so much stuff that we've, we've been so gluttonous with this 
over the years that we're losing our connection fundamentally with the sky at that point. And that's, yeah. that's an, I've never heard of anybody put it that way, but that's, I really appreciate you yeah. putting your perspective on that. Um, or yeah, but it's, it's an interesting perspective I haven't heard of before, but it really kind of rings true on a lot of levels when you start to think about that. Um, uh, the next question, um, will there ever be plans for remote well, it's, it's observations? It's not mine. I, I just only steal from the vest. Assuming there is some working equipment at the site today. We are certainly working on remote observing. At the moment, if there's a human being on site to open and close the dome and keep an eye on the weather, we can do everything else from a, a workstation in the University of Arizona. And our next step is to make it completely robot, robotized because it is a really long and hard drive to get up there. It's kind of nice once you're there, you know, you've got a week, it's like being in a monastery by yourself at very comfortable quarters. but at this point, we don't see that we would be opening it up to donors simply because we are subscribed ourselves with the astronomers that we have. We have three quarters of the time, the universities, plural of Arizona, Arizona and Arizona State, Northern Arizona can all use a quarter of the time. And the telescope mm -hmm. is such a beautifully imaging telescope. It's so sharp. It gives you such marvelous images that the kind of work that requires imaging um, is and and a and that's, small that's what uh, I thought. That's, live I know there's a lot of you know, easily moved telescope that it's ideal for a certain there's a shortage of telescopes in that size range now and there are some things that you can use this telescope yeah, for that the big ones just are too cumbersome to use so at the moment yourself, we're pretty much fully subscribed that's not a really major commitment but you have some of these observatories where there's half a dozen programs or more and it wouldn't say you're fighting over time but you get very limited amount of time on the equipment so the fact that you have your own uh telescope is a is a very big deal um when you start to dig into kind of the professional level of telescopes at that point mm -hmm. yeah In a, mm -hmm. in a sense, it's one of the last of the old-style observatories. We don't have a telescope operator. The astronomer operates the telescope himself or herself. We, uh, when we're there, we're you know immediately immersed. Even though we're no longer in the telescope dome, freezing our tails off like when I was a student, you're nice in, in a nice warm room that's separated mm -hmm. from the telescope. You're still in the environment and. Yeah. You can, you know, stick open the door and stick your nose outside and see what the weather's doing, see what the sky is like. Well, it's cool. You, you can see the that. data coming full time in real time, uh, rather than uh, saying, "Oh, I want this," uh, and you wait three days and it was in the queue, and then they they send you the images, Hopkins, but you really don't know what the, the telescope was doing when that was happening. It's uh, the other side of it's an old fashioned but really beautiful way to continue to do astronomy. Yeah, you have to rely on that person running the telescope as opposed to you being there. So it's a, 
Mm-hmm. That's. I, I've just got to mention that the Mount Hopkins telescope, the uh, mm -hmm. it's called the Whipple telescope. I'm old enough now with gray hair to be able to say all of these things that are named for people. I knew the people. I knew Fred Whipple when I was a postdoc at Harvard. Um, I knew, you know, the, the Kuiper building and the, uh, the, the Drake building at Arizona. Mike Drake was my thesis advisor. Um, I had a marvelous moment when friends of mine from my MIT days said, Guy, we've got a date for you to go see the Nutcracker. I mean, I'm a Jesuit now. I don't need dates. No, you really mm -hmm. like her. The woman they set me up with was Dorit Hoflight, who was 92 years old, had done the Yale Bright Star survey in the yeah. 60s, had been a student of Harlow Shapley's in the 20s. Uh, that's, that's and these cool are people that, know you know, she was buddies with Hertzsprung and Russell. To, and know, to be able to have this through line of the people that we read about in textbooks and then hear about them when they were actually you know, just the guy down the hall doing the astronomy. It's it's a marvelous place to be. That's that's what I you know my generation. You, they don't see as much of that anymore. So it's it's you know I've met David Levy and some other well named astronomers, but it's just mm -hmm. it's. And incidentally, Fred it's, Whipple it's a was a really breed, great guy, just a just marvelous human being. Technology is making things easier and more accessible to things. That's that's correct. Yeah, they're the ones in the trenches right now mm -hmm. doing the work, and then that's how you get your name out in lights at that point. Um, we're going to finish up here in a second. Um, one more question, because um, I, I know i got to get you back to you. Or it could be that you don't know, know now who the there. people are um, in 40 years that you'll be bragging about. Be asked about or, I'm sorry. How does it feel to constantly be asked how to re reconcile Catholic dogma with scientific progress? I'm not looking for what you think about the top that topic. I'm looking more for what you think about everyone always asking you about it. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, if they didn't, I wouldn't have a job. You know, the reason we exist is to show the world that there isn't a problem. And if you think there is, maybe you've got the problem. But on the other hand, it's also very humbling that I've been, you know, at the observatory for 30 years now. I've been talking this stuff in public all my life, written half a dozen books. Yeah. And yet, and sometimes in some ways, the same questions keep coming up, which makes me wonder, are my answers really doing the job? I don't know. And yet, I never want to say no to a question. You know, back when I was teaching, I would say the only stupid question is, will this be on the exam? Mm -hmm. Because every question, if you're open no, to a, listening to the answer, you know, does outreach, obviously, is an opportunity to totally learn something you didn't know before. Um, and then... But to inspire yeah, I, I think a, a new question or to ask the question in a new way. Nowadays, and so you need to start asking more questions. Um, and it's, okay yeah, to be it's all about coming up with the right questions. That's what, that's okay what is to, the core mission you're not of being an astronomer. Until you ask that question and 
that door might not open or you might not even know that door exists until you <laughs> ask that question and then it's like suddenly just psh, wow this is a thing and now i'm interested in it and blah 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 so that's that's a good way of approaching it so Mm-hmm. yeah every day is it, yeah and that's i think that's been the hard part not to get you know i think covid is a fabulous COVID, opportunity but, for us because um, it's, the entire world now is faced with the reality of science around, like, oh, it's not perfect see, they're wrong. it makes see, mistakes it, it sometimes like, changes its mind but it's still better than no science it shows the lack of scientific understanding in the world where it's like no you're literally watching the scientific method evolve in front of your face um and answering those questions mm. Mm. in action yeah you know, so many people stop learning science and they're about 12 years old and they never get past to get the answer in the back of the book version of science. Just like most people stop learning religion when they're 12 years old and they never get past the, you know, quote the Bible verse. That's not real science. That's not real religion. In both cases, it's living a life with an orientation to the universe that makes you open to see. Yeah based on assumptions you're making. I'm assuming the universe makes sense. I'm assuming that there is a logic behind it. I'm assuming that scientific laws can be found. I assume, yeah, I I'm assuming the there's day, goodness. Literally. I'm assuming that there's um, beauty. It's, I'm assuming it's kind that, of coming to that in getting in touch truth with truth, I'm getting in touch in some way with God. Whatever brand you those are assumptions. I can't prove that. Put it in, if, and if but anything, but those assumptions allow me to live in the universe the big in a really rich way that without science, and religion i wouldn't well, have um thank you very much um i know your schedule's busy um i'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up and let you get to your evening but i really appreciate you taking the time all the way from uh, rome to spend time with us hopefully we can have you back i'd love to do something on like meteorites at, at some point maybe when you're um in the same time zone yeah. or something like that but uh, um but yeah thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us today it's i i know from uh you know none of you know but we met brother guy in maine during the acadia night sky uh -huh. festival which if you ever get to go you should go it's a beautiful part of the country <laughs> um but i what gets me about you is a lot of people well, as you can tell like, i've oh, had a blast so thank you you know got the collar it it's kind of just there's an assumption there but we've had conversations about star wars and comic books and all kinds of other stuff so it's just like it i appreciate oh, you yeah. being as uh so down to earth as as you are and your explanations and um what you've thrown into this conversation are i really enjoy because it really makes you think on a much deeper level mm -hmm. so i really appreciate you bringing that to the table today um, so with that, um, <laughs> I will let you get to your evening. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. And, uh, hopefully we'll see you sometime sooner than later. And, uh, 
yeah, thank you so much. All right, thanks, guy. Bye. Thanks. 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 Thanks.